Welcome back for another edition of The Final Mile, where we answer your questions. Today, we've got a handful that came from, uh, see, I got some YouTube comments, some email, contact form stuff. We got a little variety of everything. Um, if you'd like to learn more about us and our training, please check out the Freight Broker Basics course. It's a full-length online course that'll show you everything from how to start your brokerage and build up that customer base and even hire the right employees. And please take a moment to check out the sponsors in the description box. It'll help support Freight 360 and our partner sponsors as well. All right, let's get right into it, Ben. Our first question comes from, it's a YouTube handle, so I'm not going to even try to name it, but uh, he asked, he had a little bit of a narrative and said he would love to hear more about email campaigns and and how we as freight brokers can use them. So Ben, I'm actually curious because I know this has been something that you've dabbled in a little bit more recently uh, yep. than me. I've definitely used email campaigns in the past. Um, but do you have any insight into uh, using email campaigns compared to the traditional uh, phone call, cold call blasting and all that stuff? What's your thought on email campaigns? And then I'll give a little bit of insight myself as well. I think they can be used effectively effectively when they're used prudently. And I know that sounds like a mouthful, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Like, I think the spray and pray approach of just sending out emails to everybody with very little thought that goes into them, I think they do more harm than they do good. Because you're basically creating a first impression with everybody you're reaching out to, and it's a poor one. And if it's not a message that resonates with the person reading it, it's more of an irritant. I mean, everybody yeah. out here in modern society gets spam every day in their email addresses, right? Like you don't want to go do more business with a company that sends you emails that aren't useful or helpful or informative. They aggravate you, right? Like, so you actually do the opposite when they're not done well. Now on the other end of the spectrum, I think if you do them well in a sense that like you hit those points, it's relevant. It hits a need they have. You're adding value in whatever way you do in this email, then they can be very effective, right? right what's your take on this? And I'll add. I'll yeah. add a- so I agree. Cause I, I think I put myself in the shoes of the shipper. When I think about this, we get hit up with blast emails, LinkedIn messages all the time. And the only ones I ever respond to are the ones that are, typically somehow personalized to me. I don't care if there's like, you know, a canned portion of it that lists a bunch of, you know, bullet points or whatnot, but something like someone will get my attention by saying something along the lines of like, Hey Nate, hope you're not freezing up there in Buffalo right now while it's starting to snow. Like if if I get that, I'm already like, okay, I didn't just get tossed into a list of a thousand people. They might have a canned paragraph below it, but they took the time to like catch my attention. I'm going to read it. Um, If it's totally canned, I usually just delete it within like a second. The other side of that, and I've used this fairly effectively, is on the carrier side. So, and again, this is, I know the the question was likely about customer and shipper prospecting, but I don't have any issue with doing a generic canned email out to carriers for anything from, hey, here's my available loads today. Do you guys all have cover or anyone have available capacity? And this could be like, maybe you've got 40 or 50 preferred carriers that you that tend to take loads from you and help with coverage. Maybe you want to send out an email campaign, just simply, I guess that wouldn't be a campaign, but a single email, that's probably fine. As far as a campaign might go, we have done one in the past as well, where we took a lot of the carriers inside of our TMS 
that we were lacking information as far as like preferred coverage lanes and things like that. And we sent out almost like a survey type thing like, hey, you know, we, we know we've used you guys in the past. We value our relationship and we want to have as much repeat utilization with our carriers as possible. We've created a really, really brief profile questionnaire. If you'd like to do, do more business with us and see our, our available lanes, please take a moment to fill this out. It'll take 30 seconds. We're still going to figure out where your preferred capacity lanes are and we'll go ahead and update it on our end. That way we'll know when to reach out to you for specific loads. I think that's a very effective way to use it as well. For sure. So I'm going to cover that and then I'll go back to the the shipper side. So I've been doing that a lot and I'll tell you what, I've had a lot of success with it for the same reasons. The thing I would say on the carrier side that I really like is, well, one, I've got much better access to understanding which carriers are a fit for what. So like I spent time and money having somebody customize our HubSpot so that I've got drop down characteristics for tanker, for instance, right? Because there's lots of different types. Do you have pneumatic tanker? Do you have line? Do you have stainless? Do you have aluminum? Do you have whatever, right? So we have little drop downs for every one of those to your point. So I can sort them. So now if I got a customer in Illinois, that has got a project at Indiana or whatever that needs the specific type, at least everyone I've ever talked to, I can sort by them very quickly within their product type or equipment type and then group them. And then I do exactly what you were just talking about. I will create a sequence for my carriers, but it's in a different way. Like my sequence isn't like trying to sell them something. I guess it is. I'm trying to sell them freight. But what I'm really selling them is like, it's usually just the details of a project. Like I have one from Michigan to Ohio I worked on this morning and I did this yesterday. So I put a three follow-up email, pretty simple. First email goes out to all the carriers that had the equipment type within that region, pickup and delivery um, that had that equipment. The second email, the first one just has the load details, the commodity, the pickups, how many loads per month they are for the whole next year, what we need and what it looks like. The follow-up goes out one day or two days later and it was just, hey, did you get a chance to read our email? Let me know if you're interested in the below. And then the third follow-up goes out two days later that just says, hey, if you're not interested in anything we're working on, can you let us know what commodities you guys ship commonly or have a preference to ship in any areas you would like to do more work in? Because to your point, I don't just care if they're a fit for this one project for my customer. I want to know what my carriers need and where they want to go so that I can match them with better projects or freight within my customers. And I don't think a lot of brokers put a lot of thought into that. But once you have that, it's extremely valuable because now very quickly I can sort who has what, who can work for what, and then I can get a hold of them or reach out to them because most people send out one blast email. The reality is, is I get, so do you. I mean, how many emails you get in a day? Like I don't respond to every email. Too many, way too many. Right. So if I get a second follow up tomorrow, there's just like, Hey, did you get a chance to look at this? I'll usually respond after the second one. And I've noticed I get a lot higher response rates from my carriers with just that simple follow up email a day later, for sure. On the shipper side, I write them manually and individually, usually for weeks until I find ones that are really effective and tend to work. Once I've done that, then I group my prospects in a way that that same email can be applied to say 50 of them. And then that's how I do my emails. So I don't just blast and point in different directions with general emails. It's like, hey, I've been working ethanol shippers for the past month. These emails tend to hit the points that I know they're interested in at this time of year. I'm getting responses when I send them out, you know, 20 or 30 a day manually. 
Okay, next week, I'm going to group another 100 ethanol shippers in this state that I haven't called. I'm going to start calling them and I'll enroll them in a sequence that is pretty simple. That same email that I sent individually, because it worked for all of them, they're in a demographic that I know they're close enough that they have similar issues. And I got a subject line that fits all of them in a way that I know is likely not to irritate them and will get some response or at the very least won't piss them off. Yeah. I'm more trying to avoid pissing them off than I am expecting to get business through. So you, I'm going to add one more thing because you did mention something really good. If you can group them into very specific things like commodity, location, equipment type, you can write out a very short one to two sentence email and blast it out to everybody on that list and it will come across as personal. It could be right. something like, hey, I've got 40 lumber companies in the Northwest. It could, it could be as simple as like, um, hey, do you guys still have, or are you guys still shipping truckloads of, um, you know, lumber out of wherever? Yeah. And then, you know, Nate, right? Very simple. It doesn't look like it's canned. And then that's a great way Put your follow up. Call them tomorrow. Like, hey, I tried. I tried emailing you guys. Just, I didn't want to bother you. I didn't hear back. I didn't want you to think it was a, a spammy email. You know, I'm curious. Blah 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 blah. And it's a great segue into a sales call. I was just going to say that the one thing I love about sending the emails out before I call is that's my opening. Hey, I don't know if you got a chance to take a look at that email. Did you see what I sent yesterday? That just puts them on their back feet for a moment and they go, oh, wait a minute. I don't know. Did I? So even the objection they might have prepared for the guy that cold calls them out of nowhere, they're kind of off their foot and they've got to just answer honestly, which allows you to go into a normal conversation easier. So it's a great opening. And even if they haven't responded, if you're using a tool where you can see the open rate, at least you know they opened it. So they did kind of see it. And those are the people I tend to call first anyway. So Yeah, agreed. And lastly... The vast majority, and I'm guessing here, but the vast majority of people that send out blast emails probably aren't following up with a call. So when you do that sure. and they're like, oh, they emailed me, like, I very, I, Ben, I very, very, for every cold call that I get now, someone trying to solicit our company, some sort of product or service, I probably get 20 emails. Like, I might get one cold call or two, maybe a week, someone trying to sell us on the latest X, Y, or Z for freight brokers. But I'll probably get five emails a day about the same stuff. And it's usually like SEO or marketers trying to like make our website better or something like that. Yes. All right. Or freight brokers trying to do business with us and they didn't do any research (laughs) and realize that we don't ship anything. That would make me laugh. Um, Next question from Mariana on YouTube. Um, We did a video called Day in the Life of a Freight Broker and she commented and saying, I'm curious. You never mentioned anything about actually paying the carrier or getting paid from the shipper. What does that look like as part of a day in the life of a broker? It's a very good point. So depending yes. on, do you want to take the stat? You want to start? I off? Was just, the only thing I was going to say is it would just be in a video titled a week in the life of a broker because you don't necessarily do it every day, but yes, yeah. for sure. Well, we kind of highlighted like the eight to five time, right? That the, the yeah. standard like working hours, but a lot of the back office administrative tasks typically fall outside of those hours or if you're if you're not a one person operation likely someone else is doing that yes. job for you so like in the case of a w2 which is really what we highlighted or an agent right we highlighted their sales operations role in that video but if you're if you're a startup and it's just you yeah you've got to do invoicing and carrier pay which will likely happen in the evening on the weekends or early in the morning it's not going to be typically part of your day that we focus on in that video yeah. 
Ideally, you should try to invoice every day if you can, because that clock doesn't start for carrier pay or for carrier or customers to pay you until that invoice is sent. So if a load is moved and de- if a load delivers Monday and you don't invoice them until Saturday, you just wasted five days of of aging or like you well, know we- of your cash flow that you got to add to your already cat you know already existing cash flow requirements. So yes. That stuff does happen in the background. Same thing with claims. We never mentioned claims. We also didn't deal with what happens if DAT or truck stop goes down. We, you know, there's a lot of back end administrative things that we didn't talk about. Um, but I do appreciate the question, the comment about it. It happens in the background. Um, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on invoicing because we can go for hours on it. But it is a um, it's an ancillary task. In addition, any additional yeah. thoughts on that? takes a lot of time. You want to do it as soon as possible and you don't want to do it during normal business hours. So the things that I would point out and you kind of already said that, like, you know, if you're working eight, you're a freight broker, you should be working eight to five, at least like if you're working, if you start at nine, you missed everything that happened in the first hour and the whole market opening. Yep. So you're probably working eight to five. And again, if you are owning your own freight brokerage, you should be doing your invoicing every evening after dinner some point where you're not sacrificing an income producing activity like prospecting or covering loads that you need to service your customers. One last tip on it. Some people are early morning risers and they like to get up early and get some stuff done. If you're an East coaster, a great time to do your invoicing and your payables would be like, if you're up at five and you're in your desk by six, six thirty. spend the first 45 minutes or hour doing that. If you're on the West coast, you have to get up early because Six o'clock for you is nine o'clock on the East Coast. So you're probably working by like five, right? At the latest. So when the day's over around two o'clock for you or 2.30, spend that time on the back end doing those administrative tasks. Good discussion though. Next question. This is a great one because it's a follow-up from our insurance conversation from uh, a recent podcast video. Um, The so I'm gonna I'm gonna phrase the, the question as how do bonded shipments work? But the reality is um, the user on YouTube, CDN Freight Broker 3708, um, they actually gave us a really good description from their perspective on how bonded shipments work. Because we talked about it with Cameron, and we he didn't really have a great um, answer. But I'm going to read. I took his comments and I kind of um, made them more descriptive. Uh, so if you're if you're listening here, um, these are not your words verbatim. But here's here's what it comes up with. Um, so again, this is different from a surety bond. This is a bonded shipment. Uh, so the T and E bond, which is transportation and exportation bond, is a type of customs bond used in the United States for goods that are passing through the U.S. but are destined for another country. It's a critical tool in international shipping and logistics, ensuring that goods in transit comply with all customs regulations without paying duties and taxes at each transit point. So, for example, right. Um, if it's going from Canada to Mexico, like let's say you're picking up in Toronto, going mm-hmm. through the U.S. delivering in uh, Cuidad Juarez, I probably butchered it, right? But it's going to, you're basically picking up and delivering at the border, but you're picking up in Canada. It's transit through U.S. delivers in Mexico. All right, keep that in mind. And we'll give another example in here too. The purpose of the bond is essentially to guarantee the cu- to customs authorities that the goods will not illegally enter the domestic market. It ensures that the goods will only transit through the country en route to final destination. Here's an example scenario that this, this listener gave. In, your exa- in this example, a rock truck, so a truck that hauls rocks, 
is brought in is bought in Canada from a company in Germany. The truck is being transported from Winnipeg, Manitoba, the seller of the truck, and it's going to we'll say it's going to Germany. It's going to go to the port of Baltimore, Maryland, all right? So it's going to go from Canada to the port in the US and then overseas on a ship and deliver in Germany. Right. The truck is being transported to the Baltimore, of Maryland, the, the port of Baltimore, Maryland, since Baltimore offers roll on, roll off, or row row, as you might hear it called, services. Requirements of the carrier: the carrier transporting the rock truck from Winnipeg to Baltimore needs that T and E bond. The bond is part of the customs paperwork and is indicated on their ACE, the Automated Commercial Environment Manifest. Now, the customs process. At the border, the driver may need to present the bond to the Canadian Border Services Agency, CBSA, or U.S. Customs. The bond allows the driver to enter the U.S. with those goods. Restrictions. While in transit, the driver can take breaks or sleep, but the goods must remain on the truck and cannot be offloaded or used until they reach the port of export. Keep in mind, if you've ever heard of a bonded warehouse, right? If there's ever a breakdown, something like that, that's where you would need a bonded warehouse where the shipment can still be considered under bond. Mm-hmm. Cancellation of the bond. Um, upon arrival at the port of Baltimore, it would be crucial to cancel the TNE bond. This step signifies the goods have reached their U.S. transit destination and are now being handed over for international shipment. The role, uh, we'll skip the rest of this stuff, but... Um, Overall significance, the bond allows goods to transit through one or more countries without the need for full customs clearance in each transit country. And we'll kind of leave it at that. But for anyone ever asked what's a bonded shipment, there is your answer in a nutshell. I don't want to add. I I don't have anything to add, but I do have more questions. I'm curious. I know that that bond was clearly for the United States so that it could go from Canada to being exported out of the United States without having to deal with customs into the United States. Cause that's not the final destination. It's a pass through. Right. <clears throat> and what you pointed out, I think the takeaway is why you buy the bond is to make sure that it can do that without having to be opened or tampered with, or the has the hassle of going through customs. Because when I've done them going into Canada, like they don't even stop at customs. They basically hand them the bond. They don't even, the, the trailers are still um, – Well, if it's just going from U.S. to Canada, there's, there wouldn't be a bond in that case. But, yeah. They, no. I've picked up imports oh, into the United yeah, States yeah. in Norfolk and then shipped them into Canada into a bonded warehouse <clears throat> where they open them. But I'm curious if they do this in Europe a lot because you've got to go through lots of countries often on truck. And I wonder if they have bonds over there because I'm thinking about what happens after it leaves Maryland. I'm like, oh, well, Germany isn't – it's probably not – Maybe landing. Well, you got to wonder, like the European Union, right? And I, I know I use Canada, U.S., Mexico example, but I'm a, the USMCA might cover that too, where you don't need to have a, the shipment bonded. So I'm not sure. I will tell you, like where I've seen um, bonded stuff with military is when it goes, um, like bonded military shipments, they leave the U.S., go to a port, get to another country, go through that port, and then are still from there transported through that country to another country. I have definitely yeah. seen that happen before. So like, for example, um, goes from Texas to the port in Galveston, goes on a ship over to Kuwait, gets off in Kuwait, is line hauled into Iraq. The bonded shipment would cover the entire Kuwait transit portion there. I was curious because I used to, well, I used to do a lot of that. When my main account, 
my, at Maersk, my first account was the military account. So everything we sent were mostly MREs and food and stuff to the military. And you're right. Like I could see the manifest, like they were never going to the port of destination. Most of them were going to the Middle East. So they would go through three, four countries before they actually arrived at wherever yep. they were going. So that's interesting. All right. Good stuff. Next question from Ruby. I'm registered as a freight broker currently. However, I'm seeking to have a driver run under my authority. So we will update to a broker slash carrier. Question is, if my drivers have their own equipment, are they able to insure themselves or is it a requirement that I insure them with a commercial auto policy? I received a few quotes, but the prices are outrageous as a new broker. First of all, don't do this. Have a, have a totally separate authority from your broker to carry. I don't even know if you can do it anymore. I think there was like a grandfathered clause where you could before, but any new brokers after a certain year have to have a separate authority. But either way, do them separate, different um, MC number for insurance purposes, for liability purposes. You ever heard the phrase like uh, pierce the corporate corporate veil veil, right? Like let's say um, truck gets in an accident and you got one truck and you got a hundred million dollar brokerage, right? Truck gets in an accident, huge liability fatalities. Oh, you also have this hundred million dollar brokerage. Ooh, we're going to come after that too, right? For sure. Great example. Why not to do it to answer the question either way. Well, we have a video the coming reason out. why most people do do it, though, is that most people that get into brokerage, every time they get the objection, we only work with asset companies, go, well, I'll solve that and I'll get one truck and then I'll be able to overcome this objection, which is really just a prospect saying, you haven't convinced me why we should work together. So they go and buy a truck to make that part of their life easier and they find out their insurance cost for every load they move through the brokerage goes through the roof just to make it a little easier to make less phone calls. And yep. to me, that's a whole lot of work and a whole lot of money to avoid an objection. I, agreed. Agreed. So we've got a video coming out this month that breaks down the, I did one on um, the automotive liability policies and the different options, like the all, all owned autos, um, non-owned scheduled autos only stuff like that. I break it all down in detail. Now here's where the issue is. Okay. If you are a, so let's say you have a separate care authority and you're going to bring a driver on, they got to be, you're going to be insuring them, right? They're, I don't care if they own their own truck or whatever. If they're operating under your authority, you need to have that truck insured, yep. right? And that could be, there's a variety of ways to write that policy. It could be um, scheduled autos where they're listed on that authority um, or non-owned or whatever the case might be. But either way, you have to have coverage for a vehicle that you do not own and your insurance broker will help you get the right policy. Now, if it's an owner operator that's leased on, sure, they might have their own insurance for their own their own company because it's written in their company's name. It's not written in your company's name. So if they're, if they're legally operating under contract to you as a leased on um, driver, your insurance needs to cover them. Their insurance will not. Now, what happens here yep. oftentimes is people just double broker it and they think they're just leasing someone on. They're like, oh, they got their own truck and insurance. Yeah, we'll just say that they're leased on to us. Well, guess what? If they're actually using your name and MC, their insurance won't cover it. So what do they do? <laughs> they just double broker it and they just say they're leasing them on. So yeah, that's a rabbit hole right there. We can go down, but we don't well, have the We time. can at least point out that if you are listening to this and you are doing this, you are putting yourself in a lot of liability and this stuff happens a lot. Like we've had four or five instances just within our clients in the past couple of months where that's happened. The claims come up and the insurance is like, best of luck, everyone. We're not yeah, covering like the, anybody. The one you had, right? The the driver didn't have the capacity, so gave it to his cousin or something, right? Yeah. 
cousin was not legally contractually leased on under that authority and listed on the insurance, right? Yep. They essentially just double brokered it out to their cousin exactly. who didn't have the insurance for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Last question. We'll wrap it up here. Is oh, <laughs> I guess we got yeah, one more here. Um, and I don't know what the name on this one was, but uh, so I've been getting a ton of inbound calls about snowbird vehicles. If you don't know what a snowbird is, that's people that move south when it gets cold and they move back up north when it gets warm. So if they live in New York, go to Florida. When it's wintertime, they'll uh, fly to Florida, have their car shipped down. And when it gets warm in the spring, they'll have their car shipped back up and they'll fly up. All right. So my company partners with another company to get across the border and through customs. However, they're very expensive. I mean, from Toronto to Michigan, they're like $2,000. There has to be a cheaper option when dealing with customs. All right. So in this case, they're going, I don't know that Toronto to Michigan is a snowbird, but I suppose if it gets, <laughs> I don't know how much warmer it's going to be or less cold. It's going to be in Michigan from um, Toronto. But horrible. anyway, I, I digress. So I'm going to go winter in Michigan. Yeah. So here's what, what I would say here. It's, it, it's this simple. Why are you using another company to get across the border? We go back to the customs, USMCA, North America, free trade, right? And we'll talk cabotage for a quick second too. You as a freight broker can hire a truck to pick up in Toronto and deliver that car into uh, Michigan. And you should not be paying $2,000. That's simple. You're probably hiring some freight forwarder who is telling you that they're going to handle everything customs-wise, blah, 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 blah. And they're ha- they have a big, fat 50% plus margin on there. Um, the, the laws of cabotage say that you could have a Canadian or an American truck do this, right? Canadian carrier can pick up in Canada, deliver in the U.S., and they can even pick up in the U.S. and deliver back to Canada. They just can't hang out in the U.S. and deliver a bunch of loads. Same with American driver. They can drive up to Toronto, pick up that load, Bring it back to the U.S. They just can't hang just out can't in Canada pick, and deliver a bunch you of just loads. Can't pick up and deliver in the within other within that same country. Yeah. Same yep. goes with airlines, uh, cruise ships. I think. I think it's like an international. Well, I know it's at least the United States cabotage law. We don't let out, we don't let international carriers, whether they're air or ground, whatever. They can't come into the United States and then operate domestically within the United States without heading right back to their country. Right. I think it has more to do with like work. It's all about competition. We don't want to bring in yeah, competition the externally force. and have them not pay taxes. There's, there's a lot of that in Europe right now related to the Ukraine war that I read about with um, truck drivers from Ukraine, like getting work in other countries, right? Cause they literally have to leave um, in certain areas. Right. And there was just pushback because with all of that happening, right. To your point, yep operating in other countries, trying to be able to find work to support your family. And it's creating a lot of tension, obviously, but yeah, pretty simple. You can pick up in the U S deliver to Canada, pick up in Canada, deliver to the U S or in Mexico. You just can't pick up and deliver in a country you aren't originating. And lastly, this specific example, Michigan. Okay. Michigan, just like New York and a bunch of other States directly borders Canada. So you're going to have a lot of carriers that not only are willing to do this, but are used to doing this. Right, like Buffalo, you can either go south. Or you can either drive from Buffalo. You can either drive south, east, or into Canada. There's no other no other place to go. So yeah. it's very common for carriers in our area to go into Ontario, Canada, and like Toronto, for example, and deliver there, pick up there, whatever the case might be. But great questions. Keep sending them in. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts, man? 
whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills.